0: to start listening.
4: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pena of SP Nation. Now, Michael, we're going to switch things up here a little bit. We've been pretty serious the last couple of weeks on the uh, podcast, and no big surprise there. But you'll remember at the la- end of the last episode, we had an Orlando Magic fan, quote unquote, email in to admit that he had been completely lying to us, uh, in all of his correspondence, he wasn't really a Magic fan. His girlfriend hadn't really cheated on him. Uh, I mean, he was asking for penance. It was this whole drawn-out ordeal, right? But that—that uh, that Magic's fans' lies, his admitted lies, have prompted another Open Floor Glow member to email us at openfloormail at gmail.com, Openfloormail at gmail dot com with this. Joseph writes, in the spirit of the guy who was lying about being cheated on and being an Orlando Magic fan, I had an idea. We need an open floor globe version of two truths and a lie. Michael, I I need some levity in my life. I don't know about you. It's been a long, long time. Since I've played Two Truths and a Lie. And you know, you and I, we've been doing this podcast together for a couple months, but you know, I don't necessarily know that much about you. Um, I enjoy comparing you to like, you know, cologne models and and other things like that, but um, Mm -hmm. you're probably gonna be able to pull one over on me. And I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do the same, you know, vice versa. But let's just do this. Let's do two truths and a lie. Um, and I think you should go first. So you're going to give us three statements. I'm going to carefully weigh them. I might comment or make fun of you along the way. Uh, and then I'm going to try to see if I can decipher the lie as if I'm one of, uh, you know,
5: the world's greatest detectives. How's this sound? This is going to be a lot of fun. I cannot wait, Ben. Uh, so I'm just going to jump right in and read my, my three statements to you right now. Is that cool? Uh, it's cool. Now, let me ask you, I didn't specify at all. Do you want to do basketball or
4: non-basketball or personal life? Did you have any like philosophical uh, approach to this? Did you try to keep it to one subject or did you just go all over the board? It's a
5: little all over the place, I would say. Perfect. Let's do it. Okay. So number one, the only varsity sport I lettered in during high school was volleyball. Ooh. Number two. <laughs> Number two. Dana Barrows and Ryan Gums are both my second cousin.
0: Wow. Number
5: three. Number three. I have never been to Africa.
4: Wow. 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 Oh, Michael. So there's so many built-in traps to your statement. So the first one, you said the only sport that you lettered in, which this is probably setting up a brag because you've probably got multiple letters and you're still <laughs> living in your early 2000 glory days when you used to walk around the high school parking lot showing off your Camaro and you know giving rides to the underclassmen. Um, that's my first thought. My second thought... Um, you 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 seem to me like someone who's probably been to Africa. I just feel like there might be a Morocco, <laughs> there might be a Morocco trip in there somewhere. There might be a a Kenya safari. Like I'm not betting against you in terms of worldliness, uh, if that makes sense. Um, I, and that's an a- appreciation factor. I, I'm not trying to uh, slight you in any way. Now give me the other one again. It's your cousins or your second cousins. Were Dana Barros and Ryan Gomes right?
5: Yes, Dana Barros and Ryan Gomes are both my second cousin.
4: I mean there's some real athleticism there that I'm not seeing in you Michael. Um so Appreciate it. <laughs> I don't know if if like the genetic tree just had soggy roots maybe. Um maybe there wasn't enough fertilizer on your side of the uh, of the of the, uh, of the family tree or what. Um but there's such random names. I and they're not really that I mean it's cool like honestly if if that's true I'll be impressed but it's not really like you're, sh- you're like wooing your wife with that information. Like, oh, you know, Dana Barrows is my second cousin. Like, she's like, who's Dana Barrows, probably. Um, okay, I have decided that your lie is that the only varsity sport that you lettered in was volleyball. I believe that you lettered in volleyball and at least one other sport.
5: I'm taking it to the bank.
4: Final answer, Michael, how'd I do? Incorrect,
5: Ben. What? Incorrect. That is true. The only sport I let it in during high school was 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 volleyball. That's it. The only one. Okay, well I'm not like, gonna lie on the pod. Not gonna we're, lie.
4: Uh, we're gonna dig into the two other ones here in a second. Tell me more about your volleyball career. Were you a setter? Were you a bumper? Were you a spiker? Uh, what do they call the positions? And just give us like a full breakdown of your game. Like on a scale of like me
5: to Chase Budinger, how good were you? Um, I need it all. So I was actually—I'm not gonna lie—I was a natural. Uh, my position was outside hitter, so basically the person who uh, comes up from the sides and smashes the sets. Uh, and back in the day, I had a 40-plus inch vertical before I started to come on. Before I, 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 these are all these are all facts. I could have put it you in. You didn't for have the, a 40-inch vertical. I. I had a 40 inch vertical leap. Not gonna lie, freshman year in high school. Oh my god! So that I had that going for me, and then from there, it's just jump, time it, and smash your fist down on a ball. And it was like our setter was All State, so it was beautiful. Uh, so I think that was. So you were like just, the DeAndre Jordan, basically. I was getting up there, yeah. So they like you uh, had it,
4: Chris you had Chris Paul setting you up and you were just like flying around smashing volleyballs into the faces of these poor kids.
5: Yeah, and I wasn't super tall or anything, so I wasn't even the best on my team, but our coach was just he's widely renowned. I don't know if he's still at my high school, but we the boys and the girls team both went to the state championship basically or the state finals almost every year for just years and years and years um so he was a great teacher and when I first picked up the game I was on JV at the start and then they basically called up a few people from the JV team to go on the uh the the state tournament run and I was I was called up and I got to uh serve a few in the the state semifinals, and it was a it's a big thrill big thrill my
4: goodness, Michael, I've learned so much about you. So, did you mm-hmm. sneak up on people because you're mentioning that you weren't the tallest, but you had this insane vertical leap? Like, did people like call you the squirrel or anything? Like, where did you get any like nicknames or just like, you know, were you because when I picture big time volleyball spikers, I do picture like the Winklevoss twins, right? Like, six mm-hmm. foot eight, kind of Nordic long arms, uh, you know, using their uh, kind of using their appendages, kind of like windmills. But I feel like you maybe had a different style, like you're more of like a Steve Francis type.
5: Yeah. So that's basically what the outside hitter does. The middle hitters are the big dudes because they can move from side to side and they can block the spikes. So that's what you really want from that position. But from the outside, you can be whatever height, as long as you can get up and you can angle your smash and your spike and all that.
4: Okay, this is going to be a tough question for you to answer. I need you to be um, okay. fully honest and, and self aware here. Um, okay. h- how cool were the volleyball
5: players at your high school? Is that a big deal? It was absolute. We were absolutely ignored until <laughs> <laughs> until you get to like it was a spring sport. So until you get to like the state tournament and you're hosting games and it's like an excuse for kids to show up drunk. At, on a Friday night to, to the high school gym and like cheer on their team. That's when it was like, okay, let's pay attention. But everything before that was like, oh, we have a volleyball team. That's that's pretty cool. Did you wear the letter jacket? Absolutely not. I don't even oh. think we got, a. Only, only the football team got an actual jacket, I think. We literally just got letters, like felt letters that I, oh, I think goodness. my parents still have. That's perfect. So you could just tape it to the bumper of your car.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What an honor. Um, All right. So take me to your second statement here. Uh, You are related uh, to Dana Barros and Ryan Gomes. So that explains the vertical leap then.
5: I guess so. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, it is a humongous family. Uh, It's just obviously on my dad's side. Um, And my dad's black and my mom's white. And uh, my grandmother had something like uh double-digit siblings let's just say a lot of siblings like over 15 so the family is humongous and uh so i would see i saw ryan i met ryan gums at a uh family reunion when he was at providence and he was like one of the it was right around the time that jim calhoun uh failed to recruit ryan gums and so he was a private, he went to Providence and then just like decimated them. And there was this, there's this big, you can YouTube it. I'm pretty sure Calhoun basically called out his own team um, and just said that Ryan Gomes murdered us and blah, blah, blah. And it's a pretty cool moment. Um, so when he went to the Celtics, that was like a humongous deal in my family.
4: So do you have his jersey? I mean, like, do you have Dana Barrows, his jersey? Oh, yeah.
5: Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. We have signed jerseys at the house. It's pretty cool.
4: Oh, my God. This is incredible,
5: Michael. All right. So are these guys on your speed dial, though? They are absolutely not on my speed dial. No. I, Interesting.
3: I, <laughs> no,
5: I try to keep tabs. I mean, I th- I'm pretty sure Dana Barrows works in like community relations for the Celtics, which is awesome. And his, I think his, I mean, I don't want to speak too deeply on this because I don't know for sure what the status is, but I do know that his mother used to be like live right next to my grandmother um, in Massachusetts. So so. I I
4: don't, I don't believe this part of the story at all because I think that you're just protecting your sources. I think that anytime (laughs) we we read a story that says multiple sources told SB nation, it's your two cousins teaming up to feed you information. And I say this because I I know a, uh, a media member who is related by blood to Giannis's um, uh, girlfriend or fiance. Um, and I would just try to picture myself in that situation. And I would be so annoying trying to work my way into every family event just so I could hang out with Giannis and ask him a million like questions off, to, off the record, quote unquote, right? To get all these yeah, little sure. details that, you know, just doing that mental exercise of, uh, how I would play that, I just don't believe for a second that you're not hammering Dana Barrows and Ryan Gomes for inside information regularly, Michael. I mean, you're a dogged reporter. There's no way you're just letting these <laughs> these uh, connections go to waste. Come on now, you got to pick your spots, Ben. That's the key here. <laughs> All right. And the third one, you threw me off with the Africa thing. Did you um? Did you know I would bite on that because I'm such I'm so into the the globe aspect of everything. Was that um? Uh, you know, was that intentional to try to make me miss or what?
5: There was no particular strategy here. I tried to hit you with a negative so, you know, that I've never been instead of I have been to a different place. I just it, I think it just complicates the game a little bit and makes it a little bit more fun. But as you've figured out by now, I guess I have indeed been to Africa and you pick the country uh, when you were talking about it. I we, we, we Me and my wife uh, honeymooned in Morocco. So see, you know what? I might have seen those Instagram
4: photos, maybe. This could have been like uh, did because I'm sure you posted some, right? Let me guess. You, you got on a camel did, at some point. Yes. Did you get it? yes see, there yes, you go. Yes. See, yes. I definitely saw those, so I, I had the tip off. <laughs> Thank thankfully uh, Instagram never lets me down. Um Well, fascinating work, Michael. I completely botched it, but you win. Uh so now it's my turn. Now I'm gonna just tell you this. i Added a basketball layer to all of my answers. Okay.
5: Okay. Okay.
4: So this is there's different phases of life, obviously, um, but basketball is the is the uh, the tie that binds, so to speak. All right. Ready for number one? Oh, I was born ready for this. I passed on multiple opportunities to play basketball in the state of Oregon on the collegiate level, so that I could pursue my academic career across the country. That's number one. Number two, I once shattered a backboard in front of an adoring crowd only to incur a harsh punishment from the authorities. Okay? Number three, this one's a little bit longer. Stick with it. I watched the Pistons beat the Lakers in the 2004 NBA Finals in total disbelief in part because I was suffering from Montezuma's revenge while living with a middle-aged woman in Guadalajara whose primary activities were drinking tequila, playing bingo, and making me ride around in the bed of her pickup truck without a seatbelt.
5: There, there you go. <laughs> are, you my, done? Those okay. are
4: Those are my three statements. So it's... Uh, Multiple opportunities to play college basketball, breaking a backboard in front of an adoring crowd, and watching the 2004 NBA Finals in total disbelief because of a middle-aged woman in Guadalajara.
5: Michael, what is your answer? (laughs) Can I ask one quick follow-up question? Absolutely. So for number two, when you say you shattered the, the backboard and then you said you incurred the wrath of authorities, what type of authorities are we talking about here?
4: Michael, I'm not going to be able to give that away. All I can say is that you will agree once I describe uh, or once I fill this out that they ca- they qualify as authorities. I'm being fully on, honest and genuine with all three of these statements, okay? Obviously, one of them's a lie, but I, <laughs> one I, I, <laughs> I, I presented
5: them fairly, okay? Okay. Um, so, number one, passed up basketball opportunities. To go to the East Coast and follow your academic dreams. Um, I just off the top, I'm gonna say that, like, no disrespect, I think that that one is the lie.
4: Oh, Michael, you won again. <laughs> Unbelievable. You're correct. Uh, there were no basketball opportunities to play in college, only academic opportunities. Um, unfortunately sadly um soccer was my sport i wasn't uh, a volleyball player a cool volleyball player like you um but uh wasn't were you a goalie no wasn't a goalie what kind of insulting question is that what
5: do you you're a tall guy goalies are
4: tall okay all right i was a left outside midfielder or a left forward because i was left footed they basically stuck me out there you know out to dry um no, I I was always an attack-minded player in soccer. I, I didn't want to do the hard work, the defense. I wanted all the glory. Um, you know, I wanted the ball constantly. You know, I was always clapping my hands impatiently, waiting for it to get swung to me so I could go one-on-one and ignore my teammates. Um, I liked corner kicks, <laughs> big on corner kicks, Michael, and also big on PKs. I loved the one-on-one challenge uh, of the penalty kick uh, environment. Um but, uh, yeah, sorry. No basketball opportunities. It was too easy, I guess. Uh, but thanks I for mean, betting against yeah. me. Unbelievable. <laughs>
5: well, I'm just like, you're a sensible person, and like nobody would pass up playing college basketball to like pursue creative writing. I'm sorry. That's just not going to happen. Wow. I- I- it just isn't. You can also, I'm sure, at these Michael. institutions, they have their creative writing programs. You could have done. Stop right there. Stop right both there. at the if, same time.
4: Let's just say, for hypotheticals' sake, I had the opportunity to be a walk-on player at Chemeketa Community College in Oregon, which is <laughs> most well-known uh, because of Rick Adelman's tenure there. Um, before he went on to a few bigger and better jobs along the way. Would I really do that, overtaking the opportunity to go to kind of like Johns Hopkins University? Come on, Michael, it's plausible.
5: No, it's not. I'm sorry, but the so, other two. <laughs> let me just say the uh, the other two were so specific. I mean, I knew once what, uh, the way the tone of your voice with the second one when I asked the follow up, which might have been a little, it yeah, might have been was cheating, cheating a little bit on that my was part. Yeah, I could tell that that was true. And then, uh, I mean, number three, you just dug yourself in a hole with that one. It was way too specific, way too even for someone who is uh, right. got are, the creative writing background. These do. are these are good stories,
4: Michael. All right, so the backboard. I was in preschool at Montessori preschool in in uh, in, uh, in, we, in West Hills of uh, Portland. And we had an exchange student day where a whole bunch of Japanese girls who didn't know anything about American society just randomly showed up at the preschool. So it was my job to try to teach them basketball. So I moved over a few of our like little playground equipment because we had a hoop that was sort of, uh, I guess, not stapled but sort of like screwed into the the side of a classroom. Mm-hmm. Climbed up on the um, on the equipment to show them what a dunk was, right? Hung on the rim too long, ripped the rim off the backboard. Backboard rips off the side of the classroom, so like the wood is basically exposed, and I just go crashing to the ground. Thankfully, it was only a, four, a few feet. Now I did break my arm at that same uh, uh, preschool, um, but this this was no injuries involved. Of course, all the Japanese, uh, you know, five and six year old girls thought this was great. Like, if this is basketball, amazing. (laughs) We're just like wrecking (laughs) school property and falling on the ground. Teachers come over, irate. Um, Ultimately, my father was called. He is the authority figure in this story. Since then, he has never been more mad at me ever in my entire life. It's always (laughs) stuck with me. I have a terrible memory. He was furious. He had to make arrangements to kind of pay for the hoop, fix the side of the wall. I mean, I'm sure it couldn't have cost that much. But he's asking me, what are you doing? This is how you treat other people's property. What, you know, you're supposed to be a good citizen of the world. We can't even send you to preschool without this happening. I mean, really, really read me the Ride act. I don't know if there was detention involved. The Montessori teachers are pretty nice. Um, but ultimately, uh, it was a tongue lashing for the absolute ages, Michael
5: that sounds like a life-changing event for you like if you never got caught or if your dad didn't react the way he did it seems like you could have gone down a very dark path or maybe i could have gotten a basketball scholarship if i had just kept it up
4: right? <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't have to settle for being a creative writing major like apparently it's not good enough for michael pino over here all right um number three the 2004 nba finals that was true obviously a lot of details like you mentioned um Study abroad in Guadalajara, trying to learn Spanish. As soon as I got there, boom, uh, sick to the stomach. Don't really know what caused it, but you know they call it that Montezuma's revenge—that uh, crazy stomach uh, virus that you can kind of get. Of course, um, I was living with my house mom, who was. Basically hosting foreign exchange students as a way to skim money from the school. I mean, there was very little um, care kind of put into <laughs> my, my, I mean, I had my own bedroom. That was basically about it. Um, I was forced to subsist often on Burger King. Um, anytime I brought home a burger and did not bring one for her, uh, I could count on death stairs and, you know, request for half of my burger little bit of a traumatizing experience. I will never believe the Pistons actually won that series. First of all, because it was so like unexpected and just kind of counter to most NBA history where superstars win. Um, But also because I was like legitimately in a delusional fog because of the disease. Mm -hmm. And the part about the bingo and the pickup truck was also true. I mean, she would just love going to the bingo hall. And every time she would go, I would basically have to go with her, but she would bring her friends. So they'd sit three across in the cab of the pickup truck I would have to sit in the back with no seatbelt. certainly would never be allowed by my overprotective parents. And often it would be raining. So I would be completely drenched by the time we got to the bingo hall and not really know the language. So I couldn't really participate. And I wasn't old enough to gamble. So I just had to watch them play bingo. Um, this is not exactly how you're supposed to do um, foreign travel, Michael. I think getting on the camel in Morocco might have been slightly better.
5: Wait, wait. Uh, was I, maybe I blacked out for a second? But did you explain in detail what, like, how this all happened? What you were doing down there? Oh, I was just studying abroad, learning Spanish. That's all. <laughs> okay.
4: <laughs> After that, I went on a great backpacking trip through Central America, which I'll never forget. But um, yeah, I was. Uh, not exactly how you're supposed to do it uh well that was fun two truths and a lie michael pina you're crowned the champion congratulations uh, maybe we'll have to encourage some of our listeners to send in two truths and a lie um, you know we can't really trust them anymore uh, after the magic fan has ruined that forever uh but uh you know we'll see this is it we've got an amex platinum pro on our hands ladies and gentlemen we haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the centurion lounge from Mario. I believe Mario is a, a a foreign open floor glow member and he writes, "Hey fellas, I had a suggestion for the rest of the NBA season. What if they do play the rest of the season without fans, but the media could still attend and be inside the building? Wouldn't it be cool if the media could make up for the lack of fans by holding up foam figure fingers and random posters of the players names on it and maybe even wearing their jerseys? It would be so cool." Uh, And it would help take place of the empty arena. Now, Michael, uh, what are your thoughts on Mario's proposal that rather than be media members, we just be stand-in fans um, as we cover these games, assuming they do happen? What do you think?
5: So Mario is clearly unaware of the cardinal rule of sports journalism, which is no cheering in the press box. I, I dare wonder how all of society's social norms would crumble if this actually happened. Well, no, that uh,
4: that's a universal rule across the country, except in Boston, right? I mean, you guys have different <laughs> rules over there, right? <laughs> no, but isn't I, it I, mandatory? I, like, I think what he is
5: describing is he wants us all to be the Celtics media, right? This is a uh, unwanted cheap shot, a low blow from you. I expect better. Uh, I, I, in all seriousness, this would, I mean, this would be fun. I don't really have anything to. I'm not gonna like get on my high horse and on my soapbox about this one it's whatever uh <laughs> i think it would be it would be cool to see fan i mean see media members kind of cheering on pl- players i mean it would completely deteriorate uh, their are pre-existing relationships. And uh, there's a reason why no cheering in the press box is the cardinal rule of sports journalism. But for this, I think we could make a, this seems like an extenuating circumstance and I really don't have any humongous problem with it. Plus, if the Celtics were playing, I would have a reason and finally be justified in standing and clapping every time Jason Tatum caught a ball.
4: Yeah, I mean, I would agree. A, a pandemic is definitely an extenuating circumstance to say the least. <laughs> um, so, Mario, here's the deal. In all seriousness, like, I know this isn't necessarily how it is all the way around the world, and, and different countries have different standards. Here in the United States, it's like absolutely not cool for media members to cheer basically at all. You're supposed to sit there almost like a, a statue when you're watching these games, and uh, you can get you know dirty looks. You know, even if you gasp at a dunk or something like that, depending on how old school the other media members are. Now I tend to be an eighty-year-old trapped in a you know a thirty-something-year-old's body when it comes to this stuff, Michael. If there's people cheering on press row, it grinds my gears. It really does. Or you know even just like getting a little bit excited. Um, but Mario, you you raise a good point because in this modern media environment, a lot of people who do cover these games happen to have a personal affinity for players or teams. It's just kind of the nature of how sports discourse has gone. We're not all these like beat writers from the 1970s right it's just a different type of environment um so it is a little bit like fake in a way that everybody's just sort of suspends all rooting interests when they go work i I just don't think that most people are that robotic when it comes to covering these athletes in games now mario i i I can't see this happening in a playoffs or the rest of the season whatsoever i just think it would absolutely (laughs) not it can't happen but if there was Michael, maybe like a charity game, and Adam Silver has floated this out, right? Bring together some of the stars, and maybe you do a charity game for coronavirus, and you, you televise it, and, and you raise all the money, and you donate it to certain, um, you know, you, you donate it to certain organizations. I think that you know, if the media does have to be there, there could be sort of like a friendlier type, like we're all nymphs together type of uh, vibe to it. Um, mm. You know, we are the world, so to speak. You know, and sure. In that case, um, you might get me in a pom-pom, okay, Michael? That's I'm,
5: that's all I'm going to promise. You, you might be able to get me to shake a pom-pom. I, then this needs to happen. Uh, and <laughs> I, I I will say real quick, like covering games in New York, there are a lot of international media members. And I remember uh, at a Knicks game, it was Frank Nilekina's debut, and I was sitting next to three French journalists and... Uh, his first basket or maybe even when his name was just announced or when he first checked in or whatever it was, like they were standing and clapping and it was one of them. I mean, I I turned into Ben Gulliver in that moment. I gave a side eye like nobody's business, but- Wow.
4: Yeah. Did did you you call over the PR and be like, excuse me?
5: uh, (laughs) There's a disruption here on Media Row. We're going to need to have this looked into. I try to limit my interactions with Nick's PR as much as possible. So now there was no there was no back and forth conversation about it. Just the the quick side eye glance.
4: Fair enough. Let me ask you, in terms of the of the actual NBA team media beats, you don't have to call out anyone by name, which would be great if you did. Um, Who do you think are the biggest cheerleaders? Like, I mean, it's obviously the Celtics, but uh, would you agree (laughs) that it's the Celtics Uh, or would you put in uh, a different uh, a different nomination?
5: that's offensive. I, you know, I guess like before I started covering, uh, uh, the NBA professionally, I was convinced that, uh, all Lakers writers were in the bag for the team. And I obviously don't think that anymore. And, uh, I was naive to believe so, even though there are a few who I still think to this day were in the bag at the time, but, uh, but no, I, it's tough to, that's a tough one. I I would have to think a little bit more about it and get back to you with a specific answer because none, I mean, I, you know, this is also a public forum and I do have some thoughts that I don't necessarily want. Yeah, to, you know, just, we're not just trying keep to it real. The, it's a pandemic, bridges. bro. Just just be your best self. <laughs> All right, I'll throw a couple out here and you can,
4: you okay. can compose your thoughts. Okay. I mean, the Toronto Raptors media... And it wasn't necessarily their beat writers. I'm just talking about the whole show, right, during the, the playoffs last year. And, of course, there's a nationalistic spirit about it because this is such a huge moment for Canada. But in some cases, it was just, like, so far out of control, right? I mean, I'm sure you saw some of the tweets about, like, oh, the Raptors bringing the country together. And, like, there's elements of truth to it, but they laid it on absolutely so. Wait, big. wait.
5: Can I can I chime in, actually? Because that Please. actually it brings to mind... There were a flurry of tweets from certain people who cover the Raptors, who I love and I read and I admire. But talk of, you know, referee calls and, you know, who's refing tonight's Raptors playoff game and why the fans should be upset about it. I was just like, yo, at this point, it's like, you can't be talking about the refs if you work in media. You just can't do that. There you go. Now now you're getting, you're getting warmed up here,
4: Michael. Um, <laughs> I would also say when I first started writing, I was convinced that all the Blazers writers were just like complete homers. And it was part of the reason why I wanted to write because I felt like they were just like doing these soft touch profiles on like the young players. And I was like, these guys suck. Like they're terrible. Like I pay to watch these games when I was a fan. Right. And it's just like, how mm-hmm. are we, how are we painting the ninth guy? Like he's actually a player. This team is horrible. Like so that was part of the reason why I wanted to like get into writing and just be like, you know, just bring a little different perspective to it. Um, as I've gotten older, you know, you kind of understand how the job actually works. And like, yeah, you, you can't
5: be the beat you actually, Yeah, you actually have relationships with the right. people. And right. so you can't be, as I said earlier, burning the bridges.
4: Exactly. But I do think that like a lot of times it's the small market teams sometimes as well that have like the most passionate fans which wind up in a lot of cases i do think kind of influencing the coverage too right because ultimately like if you're a writer you're trying to produce content that people want to read and um uh, you know and so sometimes that means you're you're fairly uh, optimistic in favor of the team um you know i feel like i do want to defend the media members here on some of this though because i think sometimes the, the fan attitude can kind of um overtake the actual beat writers attitudes right Where like Mm -hmm. there's so many loud people on the internet about like say the Utah Jazz, right? Their fans are just so diehard, and they just go to the wall, and they're ready to fight about everything, and like you know they stand up for the Jazz man. And I think uh, you know if you're if you're a beat writer, that does put you in awkward spot because everyone's like, oh, the Jazz are homers, and you might not be a homer at all, but it's just that you have this crazy fan base behind you, so. We should, uh, you know, avoid painting with too broad of a brush. But besides the Celtics,
5: I mean, the Celtics is just ridiculous. <laughs> I, 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 honestly just, you know, taking off my my shamrock glasses and you know putting away my green beer right now. Uh, I don't even see any of what you're talking about. I really don't. I, I. I well, I, Michael, people... I'm
4: gonna I'm gonna have to deduct a few Tommy points then. Because <laughs> <laughs> what about all these articles on Danny Age, all the trades he didn't make, the great trades that Danny Ainge didn't make? Guys, sits pat at the deadline every
5: year. We get a fawning profile about how. No, I, well, hey, Ben, I mean, I'm sure you would have rather him trade the pick that became the picks, I should say, that became Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum for Jimmy Butler and Trevor <laughs> Ariza. Like, I, you know, it's, come on. I uh, see. Here we go. Right into spin mode,
4: right into that North Korea spin mode. I love it. <laughs> you sucked me right in. Yep. All right, here comes Louie. He has another question for us. But first, he writes, uh, Ben compared himself and Michael to Bradley Beale and John Wall uh, on the last episode. But open floor is actually more like Westbrook, James Harden, and the Houston Rockets. And he says, Open Floor Globe members are actually like Rockets fans. This is dangerous territory, Michael. So he, he, he says, <laughs> I'm like Harden, the foundation and primary driving force. But fans have also had to deservingly give praise to Westbrook, who's you, who's dropping layups right in front of the defensive player of the year's face. Ultimately, the team is at its best when the two stars complement each other's game. And that's exactly what you have. Great breakdown from Louie. Much more positive than my John Wall resentment of Bradley Beal analogy that I kind of worked in on the last, uh, on the last show, Michael. Mm-hmm. What do you think, though? Is there any truth to this? You seem a lot more level-headed than Westbrook. Um, not sure I have a lot of hardened vibes. What do you think?
5: Yeah, I would say, uh, first of all, this is a lot better than the uh, the Beal-Wall analogy that you gave on the last episode. But for me, for me, I I can't see anything in common with Russell Westbrook. I would say, if anything, I get where he's going well, with this though. And slow down, you guys both had forty-inch vertical leaps in high school. Are we sure Westbrook's is forty? Did he wow. ever did, was, that, was it ever get that high? I don't know. Um, but no, my my general persona I would say is more reflective of Harden, just kind of. Uh, lethargic, <laughs> and I show up when I need to, but generally like to hang out, chill. You know, it's not it's not very in your face as Russell Westbrook is, and that also translates sartorially. I would say,
4: yeah, that's a great breakdown.
5: Okay, Louie's question. We've always wa- <laughs> I wasn't trying to be
4: sarcastic that I just had nothing to add. Louis' question. We've always wondered about NBA what ifs. If you had the power to go back in time and change one NBA team-related decision, what would it be, Michael? So how are you going to get the, the Boston Celtics a second title in the last 30 years? What move are you going to undo?
5: This is really unfair because I wrote my answer <laughs> long before I knew where the discussion was going to be headed in this episode, so I just want to make that clear right now Incredible. from the
4: jump. I can't wait because I just nailed it. Uh, Go for it.
5: Uh, uh, so I have a few answers here. Um, my first one was kind of a joke answer, and it was the Kendrick Perkins for Jeff Green trade, and... What I was particularly going for there was there were a lot of rumors before that trade actually happened that Danny ja- Danny Ainge, uh, his primary target in that deal was James Harden, and at the time Harden was not no, like nowhere he was a sixth man he he was pretty good you know the third overall pick and all that and he had potential to be something special but he was nowhere near anything what he became. And I loved Harden and I saw I didn't I also did not think he would be an M V P candidate or a scoring champion or anything like that, but I thought he was substantially better than Jeff Green. And so uh, my what if is what if Danny Ainge somehow is able to get Harden instead of Jeff Green. Do you see what I mean, Michael? Come on. Man, you just throw in a couple more future assets. You take that a little more seriously if you're Ainge and maybe you get you get Harden. And then who knows what happens after that? The dynasty that the Celtics had would have just been elongated until probably today.
4: I'm Who knows? Disg- I'm disgusted, but you got <laughs> you
5: got your Tommy points back, so congratulations. All right, what other examples you got? Uh, I mean, the uh, the obvious one is like the actual hard and trade that's kind of the stock answer here, right? Like, you know, if the For Thunder sure. don't, don't make that trade, the entire NBA is different today. I mean, it impacts so much more than just the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Houston Rockets. But I think the big picture ripple effects that speak to continuity and a model of team building, um, I think, you know, tanking would have been way more socially acceptable if, this, if the Thunder went on this dynastic run because they got they built their team through the draft as successfully as they did. And then I'm also really interested in figuring out, you know, what would have happened to the Warriors? We we, we probably never get the Warriors dynasty, right? Because Durant never leaves Oklahoma City to go to Golden State. And they're never better than the Harden, Westbrook, uh, Ibaka, Durant team. I mean, what does that do to LeBron's legacy? I mean, he gets that one title in 2011, but does he re- does he win the next season? And does he go to Cleveland and have success there? So I just think there's so many different fascinating uh, dominoes that would have taken place had that trade never happened.
4: The one thing that I've thought about it with that trade is, you know, I've always said that Sam Presti is one of the best executives um, in the NBA. And I've actually defended that trade more than most people just because I think that You know, ownership ultimately gives you an ultimatum and it's like, you know, the best of bad options is how he's trying to view that strategy and it didn't work out that way, but you can kind of understand the the predicament that he was in. The thing that I don't understand, how did he not go to ownership and basically like put his job on the line and just say, look guys, we have to do this. If we just roll with this group, we're gonna win multiple titles. It's there. If you really want to not pay for James Harden, you're going to have to fire me. How did he not pull out every negotiating trick? Because he had so much uh, built-in credibility with that group, right? Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. in terms of nailing Durant and Westbrook, in terms of hitting the ground running as an organization in Oklahoma City, like, which guy had more job security in the league than Sam Pressy? Maybe a couple other
5: guys, but not many. Um, Yeah, it's tough to go back and just rehash this one. It's still painful to think about.
4: It is. And I I guess I'm just surprised that like a guy who has been so good in so many different ways as an executive, at that moment, he didn't have the juice to just be like, just tell Mm -hmm. the owners to their face, you're going to pay for this. It's going to work
5: out. We're going to make it back on our uh, championship t-shirt sales. You know what I mean? And my final uh, answer here, Ben, that I think you'll like, this is a good one. Um, It's I wish that the Milwaukee Bucks drafted Joel Embiid instead of Jabari Parker in the 2014 NBA draft because then you have, then you have, uh, you know, obviously they took Giannis the year before, so you have Giannis kind of developing slowly um, on his own timeline. Embiid is still hurt, and and all of that would still transpire, I would imagine, but. Those two on the same team in their primes is something that I think at the NBA universe, this NBA timeline was robbed of. And it it would completely decimate the process. It would become one of the greatest PR and strategic failures in the history of professional sports. I do think that I think a lot of people will point (laughs) out, I think a lot of people will point out real quick that, uh, you know, stylistically, would they be compatible and to This is something that I think you'll agree with as someone, um, the creator of Giannis Inc. I think that Giannis would have developed a better jump shot had he been pushed to do so um, with Joel Embiid as his teammate. And that's something that, you know, Ben Simmons has not been able or willing to do. But I think Giannis would have gotten it done by now and he would have had a more consistent uh, 15 footer, at least we'll say.
4: Yeah, I mean, I can think that when I start to imagine that pairing, I start on the defensive end, and it's like that's your four, oh, and it's five. Scary. Yeah, it's like I mean, you could have such a ridiculously good defense and a versatile defense, and you and still have their rim protection aspect and everything else. Um, yeah, offensively, uh, I think the question is, is does Embiid impede Giannis's development as a playmaker and a ball handler? Um, but you know, Embiid's got the stretch to him, and I think that you would have had to lean on that part heavily. I mean, there would be some sacrifice, I think, from Embiid on the offensive end, right? I mean, would he wind up needing to be kind of a glorified Brook Lopez? um, Or are you able to kind of find some balance for him so he can work in the paint? I mean, that would be a a real coaching challenge. But no, I mean, the amount of athleticism, physicality, intimidation factor. And I also think like playing with Giannis would be good for Embiid, right? Because I think that uh, you know, having Butler challenge him a little bit, push him a little bit, I think that they, they were on the same wavelength there for a while in Philly from a personality standpoint. And Giannis is a complete psychopath when it comes to work ethic. And I think Embiid's uh, not showing up a little chunky, you know, in, on certain seasons if he knows that Giannis is going to be coming at him during uh, training camp. You know, and I that's think great. That, that's a great point. Yeah. That's the, you know, both of them are probably pulling out the the best aspects of each other. So that is a phenomenal one. Um, Louie, my answer is not quite as interesting or as rich, so I'm just going to give it to you quickly. There is only one possible answer here for me, Michael. I started my writing career with a blog called Draft Kevin Durant. The only point of the blog (laughs) was to convince the Blazers to take Kevin Durant over Greg Oden. I was convinced they were going to do it. When they didn't do it, I watched the television draft in shock at a restaurant and was like, what were these idiots thinking? Um... Louis, that's the biggest what if. My whole life would be different if the Blazers had taken Durant and he had stayed there for years and years. I'd probably wind up, uh, you know, covering that team as a full-time type thing. And that could be my career. So I think about that from the what if standpoint, I think about, uh, you know, what Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge, Kevin Durant would have been able to do together. Uh, you're probably not actually getting Damian Lillard if you, uh, if you're if you have Kevin Durant carrying you but maybe you're getting some other lottery picks in the next couple of years that followed you know when, when Durant's developing um, you know what does that team look like do they actually win a title because in Portland the whole mentality of that 1977 title team it hangs over everything they have all these different restaurants spirit of 77 you know and this the idea that they're ever gonna win again is like uh, this dream that seems impossible. But if you have Kevin Durant for the first, you know, eight years of his career, um, and he's in Nike's backyard and you're selling Durant sneakers like crazy, Durant jerseys like crazy, and you're in the playoffs year after year, now all of a sudden, you know, Portland's a, a centerpiece market for the league and, and people are talking about it in a different way. And now everything seems possible. So, um, Louie, that's the biggest what if. Uh, it will haunt me forever, but it's also kind of opened up a lot of doors for me, uh, you know, being on the right side of that one. So, um, we don't necessarily need to go back and undo it, Michael. I'm okay with it.
5: No, uh, I think the Portland Trailblazers do they lead the NBA in what if moments? Yeah, but it's, don't it, don't hurt the fan base. Be careful. Tread lightly here. Okay. No, I'm, it, I, I am. No, yeah. I, I'm. I am. I, I'm. I'm, I, I'm sympathetic to everything that has happened, and I don't want to, you know, open up uh, fresh wounds here. But uh, I have a one quick follow up for you, uh, a hypothetical, if you will. Bring it on. Um, if Brandon Roy. Greg Oden and uh, I guess LaMarca Childridge has always been healthy. But if those two stayed healthy, do you think that big three could have won a championship? Uh, Yes, it's possible. I wouldn't
4: have I wouldn't guarantee a title. But uh, yes, the thing is, they would have to have got it in before pace and space. Um, Mm -hmm. Because like Brandon was wasn't that kind of a guy. And then again, with Oden, like he's a pretty traditional center. There's really no stretch to him. Um, and so he's going to be your typical like lob finisher, but, um, you know, he, he wasn't like this big time offensive force where you're, you know, trying to, you're capable of like running everything through him. And I'm not sure how well he would have, um, I mean, I guess if you had him in the right spread, pick and roll, he would have been uh, good, but it, it's just so hard to picture what a healthy Odin looked like because the Odin that we actually saw on the court was just a shell of himself basically the entire time, you know? Um, but in a hypothetical situation, yeah, they had enough talent. And Roy was just really, really good. You know, know oh, that was, part he was of it.
5: Whew, Ridiculous. <laughs>
4: so, um, yeah, but I mean, if you're saying Blazers, what ifs, like a coin flip that they wound up getting Sam Bowie instead of a one, right? And then they take Bowie over Jordan. It's like from that top three, and that's who you come out with. I mean, I think that haunts Blazers fans for sure. And there's other draft ones along the way that we don't need to mention. All right, Michael. We got another question from Matthew, and it's obviously uh, pertinent to our current predicament here with the coronavirus. He writes, which NBA player do you think would be most successful on offense or defense with a six-foot social distancing rule? Would it be a physical force such as Giannis, Zion, or Russell Westbrook, or would it perhaps be an accurate tactician like Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, or Chris Paul? So I guess what he's basically saying is if you violate someone else's six feet airspace, you're sort of automatically charged with a a foul, like either defensively or offensively. You have to keep that buffer zone. Um, Do you have any thoughts on this one, Michael?
5: Yeah, the first thing I thought of was this is how NBA defenses literally guarded Rajon Rondo for years, most memorably (laughs) with Kobe Bryant during the 08 and 2010 finals when they would just... I mean, like the pickup point was basically between the free throw line and the top of the key. It was comical. And the strategy was just like Rondo, they would run, you know, half court actions with guys running off single doubles and whatnot. And Rondo would just be like a quarterback trying to find people. But it was, that's the first thing that popped into my head. But I think the the, the first answer here to the question is Kevin Durant I mean his arms arms are long enough to cover ground he can jump passing lanes even if he has to stay six feet away from his man and I mean he's just gonna shoot like 75 percent from behind the three-point line if no one can stay on him and his range is from like 30 feet so I he would be he's already unguardable and there's no answer for him but if you had to give him six feet it would be just completely lights out
4: it's a great answer, especially because you took into account the two-way stuff. I think the physical guys that our um, emailer Matthew was nominating would actually kind of struggle, right? Like, how is Giannis barreling down the paint if he can't be, be, you know, be within six feet of people, right? Like, if you set up a wall in front of the basket, he, you know, and he can't get in there, otherwise, you know, he's violating the six-foot principle. Uh, that's a problem for him. I think the answer is either Kevin Durant or Steph Curry, because remember when defenses were first trying to to get a a grasp on how to guard Curry, and they like didn't quite realize that you needed to pick him up 35 feet out. And then once they did start picking him up that far out, he would just like easily, you know, move past the defender with a dribble move and like get to another three pointer. Um, And there was just that long transition period of like, you know, how many bodies do we throw at him? When do we trap him? How far out do we trap him? Uh, In transition, when do you pick him up? I mean, it took multiple years for there to kind of like be a playbook on how to slow Steph Curry down. So if now the defenses were like, yeah, you can like trap him or whatever, but you can't get within six feet and he's able to pull up from basically anywhere. Um, I think that his shooting skill would be the most valuable thing. Uh, you know, basically the most valuable single attribute. Now in terms of, does he wind up giving it back on the other end? Yes, probably. Um, but let's just be thankful that this is not a rule, Matthew. This is only a hypothetical, um, because I think Curry would average probably like 45 points a game if in a social distancing NBA. What do you think?
5: Yeah, no, Curry was my number two for every reason that you just said. I mean, he's just pulling up from all over the place. If you can't, I mean, I remember one of the strategies that a really smart person wrote. Um, I can't remember where, but it was basically a pitch to defend him from behind, to like bracket him and push him. I think teams actually did this where they would, uh, you know, e- either coming off a screen just go over it and just stay on his hip, but like nudge him inside the three point line and then drop the big. And it was just like such weird strategies coming from teams that just had nothing, no idea how to stop this dude. And so if you can't be within six feet of Steph, then yeah, he's going to light you up.
0: This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands. Ladies and gentlemen, we haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge To start listening,
4: no question. All right, um, Connor writes in from Watertown, Wisconsin. He says, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and a proud member of Giannis Inc. I just graduated high school last June and I would love to become an NBA writer. My question for you both is, What are some pathways to get to your position? Is college the best route, or do you recommend diving into the field right away? My other question is, There are so many games on during the week, so what's your process for picking which games you want to watch? and when. So Michael, he's asking some biz questions, and we got time. We got all the time in the world. So uh, what advice do you have for Connor in terms of how to hop in as a writer? Maybe give us a little background on your start. And then um, in terms of uh, you know picking
5: your daily diet of games, what do you do? Sure. So I guess this question, I get this question a lot. And my answer probably frustrates everyone who asks it. So I apologize, Connor. But I mean, my path, and I'm sure Ben is the same case for you, but it probably or might not exist anymore. I, I don't know. Um, So, just a little background for me. I mean, I knew for most of my life that writing about sports, and particularly MBA NBA, was what I wanted to do professionally, and so I majored in English in college with a concentration in journalism, and then I graduated from college during the financial crisis when journalism jobs were almost impossible to find, so... I basically worked a ton of odd jobs. I mean, one of them was as a professional dog walker for about a year and a half, which was easily the best thing I've ever done. And in my downtime, I started my own blog, and I wrote in it constantly. And I would email posts that I was particularly proud of to relevant editors from team blogs at either True Hoop or you know the SB Nation team blogs or Yahoo's Ball Don't Lie, and just try to get my links on those sites and, uh, you know, gain as much exposure as possible, I was eventually asked to write for the ESPN True Hoop Rockets blog, Red 94. That went to uh, eventually led to me writing also for the Celtics True Hoop blog, Celtics Hub uh, to contribute over there. And that just, uh, the ball just kind of rolled from there. I mean, it opened up a lot of networking opportunities and allowed me to get published at ESPN and attend the Sloan conference and just meet a lot of different people. And, and I mean, in the years since I, I freelance for a very long time and I literally can't remember all of the sites that I did get published on, but I mean, sports on earth, I mean, some of them just don't exist anymore. Sports on earth, Grantland, um, I wrote a few. I wrote a feature about Paul Millsap for Rolling Stone. I mean, it was just the internet was a wild place. So I don't know how much, how much like uh, this still exists to be honest. And I wish I could be more of help. I hope that was helpful, though, Connor.
4: Well, I think that one thing that you definitely realized um, along the way, and you mentioned the Sloan Conference, is that you you got in the door and were doing interviews where you weren't just doing takes, right? Like at some point. You were writing full features and like well thought out stories as opposed to just kind of like what maybe what you started with when you were first blogging, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think that's one of the biggest uh, advice points that I always give people, Connor, is that everyone has a blog, right? Everyone has a take on every single thing. So to be different, you need to have some sort of a competitive advantage. And I think even if you're not a traditional journalist, like going through J school and all that, which is, I, I didn't do that, um, you need to be able to be an expert on something and then be able to, uh, you know, justify your expertise. And I think that sometimes that involves access uh, because that's what sports fans expect, right? They, they expect to have the inside scoop. So being able to write stories where you're interviewing people, being able to to go through the reporting process, uh, getting multiple different sources, uh, you know, talking to family members, doing the, the grind of the long interviews, transcribing them out, picking out the best quotes, coming up with how you want to lead your story to hook as many people as possible. Like those are skills that you could learn in journalism school. But if you don't, you need to teach uh, yourself how to do that. Because otherwise, you're going to probably struggle to find an audience just because there's so much competition. Now, in terms of what Michael was saying about, you know, back in the day, emailing stories out, I mean, I definitely did that for years. Um, You know, social media has sort of taken that position. And so you absolutely need to be comfortable and successful on multiple social media platforms. And that may be obvious for you, uh, you know, at your age, but also keep in mind, like, you know, you might prefer, say, Instagram to Twitter. But if all the editors who you're trying to pitch are familiar with Twitter first because they're a little bit older, you better be good at Twitter as well, right? That better be a priority for you, uh, and you better have a presence there. The other thing I'd say, too, is like, I mean, only do it, only become a sports writer if you love both the sports and the writing part. If you only like one of those two, or you like one of those two more than the other, there's probably better paying jobs out there. There's probably, you know, uh, a more sane lifestyle out there. I mean, as we've sort of described here at various points, uh, you know, over the months, Michael, and like, our, our whole life revolves around the NBA schedule, right? Like, uh, it, whether it comes to like family holidays, or when we can take time off, or You know everything else. Like it's a very grueling job. We're not asking for pity here, but you know you're you're kind of signing your life away if if you do want to become a sports writer, Connor. If that sounds great to you, if someone trying to push you away makes you want to do it even more, then perfect. If that gives you a little bit doubts, then you know maybe listen to those doubts and and think about okay, you know is this really what you want to do? So those are some of the the things that I often tell uh, younger people. But I also say like if you love sports. And you really do love writing. There's nothing better. I mean, this you know, it, it doesn't really feel like a job most days. Uh, a lot of times, it's just you know, it's a dream. And so, uh, you know, if you're on that same track, then certainly uh, you know, keep it rolling. So, Michael, how do you pick your games though?
5: Yeah, this is this is tricky. I mean, in years past, I would. Have an Excel spreadsheet, and I would you know tally and try to balance everything out as much as possible. But I was for this season, I was just kind of like screw that. Um, And my nightly routine is normally I I, you know there's games that start at seven o'clock Eastern, and most of them are at seven thirty, and then there's the sometimes nine o'clock, ten o'clock, ten thirty. So I'd watch the first half of a game that started at seven. Usually there's only one or two. Let's start that early. So I'd watch the first half. I'd I'd have the DVR on for that. And I would DVR a particular game that, you know, I either liked the matchup or for whatever reason was intrigued by it. uh, That started at 7.30. So uh, once it got to halftime, Of the 7 o'clock game, I'd start the one from 7.30 and then be able to kind of fast forward through commercials and free throws, which is a huge factor in watching basketball for me. I can't sit through. It's really difficult to sit through live games for me these days. Um, And then I would just DVR a few of the later starts and then the West Coast games and the, the Mountain Time games and pick them up. The following morning, when I wake up, I wake up really, really early. Um, so, have a cup of coffee and just rewatch, you know, the Nuggets versus the Kings or whatever it is. And to be honest, like the teams that have started to dictate which ones I watch the most are usually like whoever is coming to New York who I know that I need to write a story about or I'll have an opportunity to interview people for. And so, I would, you know, if the Pelicans are coming to, New York in a week and a half or whatever, and I have this idea, I will watch a ton of Pelicans games leading up to it. They're they're the previous, whatever, two, three games coming up to when they're in New York. And it'll just give me an idea as I jot down things in my notebook about, you know, different angles and different topics. And maybe I'll start emailing their PR department or texting people on their coaching staff or in their front office about my idea to see if it's it's good enough and worthy to write about and that's basically how it that, that so it's kind of reverse engineering but that informs my schedule for how I watch which games for sure I, I
4: definitely build my TV watching schedule around my uh, watching uh, games in person schedule right so having two really good teams in LA this year kept me super busy and it kept me at the arena you know, a lot of times like three or four nights a week, sometimes five nights a week. So fitting in uh, the games around that, I mean, being on the West Coast, I think it does make it easier because games start at four. So you get the nice balance of Eastern Conference teams usually early and then the Western Conference teams late. Um, You know, I'll be honest, I tend to watch a lot more of the contenders than some of the, the also-rans. I know that's you're not really supposed to admit that as an NBA rider. You're supposed to pretend that you watch all 30 teams uh, evenly. But some of these teams are hopeless. They're pointless. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're not <laughs> doing anything. And uh, usually I can sniff out those teams fairly early. Um, now, I do like to hate watch certain teams. Um, for whatever reason, I found myself watching a lot of Phoenix Suns and Sacramento Kings games over the years, probably because of, of time zone stuff. Um, so maybe that's why I'm a little bit harder on them on podcasts than in some other organizations because I, I do you know, sit through the uh, the exercise of stabbing myself with ice picks in the eyes uh, <laughs> while watching those games. Um, but I do the same thing. Like, if there's teams I know who are coming that, to LA that I'm going to be riding on, I want to watch them before they get here. Um, or if there's high-profile matchups that I know everyone's going to be talking about, um, I watch those games too. And Connor, like, as much as everybody glorifies League Pass and blah, 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 and I obviously have subscribed every year for a decade... I mean the national tv schedule especially when guys are healthy is a very carefully uh, refined process and so more often than not the games that we're talking about are the tnt thursday night game or the wednesday night espn game or the friday night espn game and so it would be really foolish for me to not be watching those games carefully, right? It would just almost be like derelict of duty. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm really going to watch Pistons Hornets on a Monday night uh, league pass just so I can prove like what a hardcore basketball fan I am and miss Rockets Lakers on Thursday night. I mean, give me a break, right? Let's let's keep our priorities uh, where they need to be. So um, hopefully I just kept it real there for you, Connor. And you know, uh, and hopefully you you gained something from that. I, I don't know
5: what it would be, but hopefully you did. No, no those were those were really good points uh and i mean the especially you know talking about watching the bit ba- the bad teams and kind of the more dysfunctional franchises that have no relevance in the playoffs it's tough to watch those games but for me the pre trade deadline watching of those games is really important because you get to see the players who are actually good on those teams that might get traded to a contender and shine there so like I'll watch Knicks games because I know Marcus Morris is going to get traded to a good team at the trade deadline. I just, I know that's going to happen. So I want to see how they're using him, how good he, how, just how he looks. Um, so that's just one thing before, but after the trade deadline, when the teams start tanking and, uh, it gets really ugly, then it's, it's, it is honestly really difficult to sit through a Cavs Hornets game or whatever it may be. Yeah, and I should amend that. For
4: the first six weeks of the season, I do try to watch everybody, right? And because you're trying to play that game of like who's real, who's not, you know? And that's like the hardest time of the season for me, frankly, because um, it's just all this new input, especially with player movement being so drastic here over the last few years, where guys are just like moving team to team constantly. Lots of new coaches coming in. It's like that. That's really where you're trying to wrap your mind around it as much as possible. So for that first month of the season, I mean, I'm watching as many games, like multiple games every single night, seven nights a week, right? Just trying to get my bearings and feel things out. But I'm also pretty merciless. Like once I've, once I'm out on a team, right? I go pretty hard out and it's just like, all right, you know, prove that I should care about you. uh, You know, once you're 15 games below 500. Um, All right. We're going to end on a positive note here. Michael, Tom from London chimes in. He says, Hey Ben, Hey the pod. Hope you guys are both staying safe. I love the recent episode and the solidarity that's being shown around the open floor globe. As you'll have seen, London is pretty much on lockdown at the moment and I'm working from home with my girlfriend and we're driving each other mad. I work for a fairly big sports organization as a communications and content manager. And while I think I'll be fine, my company has just announced that it will be forced to make redundancies slash pay and cut time. No sports equals no sports work. On a much lighter note, for a long time, I've been aiming to start my own sports communication agency. It's a world I've worked in for a long time, and I have the contacts to do so, but I've never really had the cojones to do it. Well, the coronavirus gave me the cojones. I listened to that last episode about the opportunities that are provided by the coronavirus just after I heard about the possibility of redundancies. And Ben was saying that this could be an opportunity, not a negative. That lit the fire within, and I'm spending as much time as possible while in isolation, piecing together a business plan, financially modeling it, and creating the pitch. Thanks to both of you guys for the inspiration, continued enjoyment, and uplifting uh, while I run. And if you ever need some UK-European media communications or content representation, you know who to call. So Michael, do you need a UK-based agent? Because our guy Thomas is ready to represent you. What do you think?
5: Yeah, shout out to you, Tom. Uh, I do not at the moment, but the second I do, you're the first person I'm thinking of.
4: Tom, I'm going to need you to get your country to care about basketball first, all right? I think that you're in, clearly you're in if you're listening to us while you're running. Um, I'm sensing a little bit more resistance than I believe should exist. I think the UK should be basketball crazy, and I I really just don't get it. Um, But that's neither here nor there. Tom, that's the right attitude, man. That's what I'm talking about in terms of seizing this moment. Um, You know, I've been talking to a lot of creative people, uh, you know, photographers who can't go out and shoot, um, you know, writers who can't go and, and like beat writers who can't go and cover games, and they're like, "What do we do?" Um, this is a crazy pause moment, um, Michael. How do you find yourself coping? Like, I, I mean, you're you're an ideas guy. That's what I've always loved about you. I feel like you've got takes upon takes upon takes, and that like, even if there was no NBA, you would find ways to write NBA columns, um, and maybe you're proving that point right now.
5: Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of just a ridiculous Google Doc spreadsheet, whatever, of just the most (laughs) off the wall ideas. Um, And I actually wrote a, uh, uh, that we published yesterday, a story about retired NBA players and how they're battling Coronavirus. And um, which is just something that I've, it was Honestly, I don't know if refreshing is the right word. It probably isn't. But for me personally, professionally, it was because I normally just strictly, you know, do the X's and O's and, and, you know, uh, speculate about trades and and just really stick to the nitty gritty of the league. And this kind of let me write just an old school journalism feature where I'm just interviewing people They Granted, they are associated or were associated directly with the NBA at one point. But having conversations with guys like Dave Cowens and Spencer Haywood on the phone for an hour, I mean, that's just it was incredible. So I do try to take the, the silver lining in all of this for myself.
4: For sure, you're not alone, man. I mean, even look at a guy like Steve Ballmer, right? I mean, is he's making the most of this situation? He's saying, "Look, I've been stuck in multiple years of lawsuits with James Dolan, trying to get my building, uh, you know, area in Inglewood, so I could put up a brand new billion-dollar arena." Right? Missing's been stuck for multiple years. Now all of a sudden, there's a crisis, and I think Ballmer's saying, "Look, there's an opportunity here. Let's strike a deal." Uh, are you finally willing to sell the forum and just like drop these lawsuits against me? And boom, they have a deal done. Now, granted, most of us don't have four hundred million in cash. And Tom, if you do, I mean, swing even bigger, right? Like, I mean, don't just start. Don't just have it be a UK-based agency. Go global. Now, if you've got four hundred million in cash sitting around, like Bomber. But uh, I think it's just another example where it's kind of like what you make it. Like, I think some owners facing this financial crunch would have said, "Oh, oh, like." Should we really be building a billion dollar arena if we don't know fans are going to be able to go to the games or when, you know, like, does this put all of the plans on hold? And instead, Ballmer's kind of going the other way with it. And he's saying, let's just like double up, right? Let's let's make this happen even faster. I just kind of respect that mentality and that vision on things. And I do think that like, this is such a tumultuous time period. But if you can kind of keep your focus on what matters to you the most, prioritize, Um, you know, your happiness levels, what's making you happy, what's driving you from a career perspective, um, you know, that you're going to be better off 12 months or or 24 months down the road once we clear this thing completely and once, you know, we we kind of reestablish a new normal all right michael on that note we've gone on long enough thank you so much and congratulations for winning two truths and a lie that's gonna bother me for the rest of the day so just let you know just know that okay all those celtics jokes i made today were just me bitter because you just destroyed me at two truths and a lie Uh, we're gonna hop back on here next week michael but before then people can check us out on apple Podcasts by searching for open floor that's two words when they find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael's on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V as in Victor Pina. If you want to follow one of the only NBA riders with a 40 inch vertical lead, you better go follow him right now. I'm on Instagram at Ben.golliver, on Twitter at Ben Golliver. Hey, Michael, they can email us openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Until next week,
5: I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.